This week on the show, we have OpenBSD full disk encryption with Core Boot and Tiano Core. FreeBSD 12.0 has end of life being reached, and so you should be aware of that. We explain a little bit more about the ZFS DVA layout and why is that important to you. Uh, OpenBSD's Go situation has a bit more clarification from last week's episode. Active Directory updates coming to TrueNAS and FreeNAS that you should be aware of, as well as the full name of FreeBSD's root account and more things in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 342, Layout the DVA, recorded for the 18th of March 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome back uh, to our uh, weekly episode of BSD Now. Not recording uh, during a conference or from a conference, unfortunately, but nevertheless, it's an episode regardless yes you get an episode every week yeah no matter what happens in the world uh whether you're quarantined or not <clears throat> hopefully not and uh, we will bring you the news from the bsd world and this first one is a headline of course uh open bsd full disk encryption with core boot and tiano core payload Thank you to Brian Everly for posting this. And it says, It has been a while since I've posted here, so I wanted to share something that was surprisingly difficult for me to figure out. I have a ThinkPad T440P that I've been uh, flashing with Coreboot 4.11 for some special patches that allow the newer machine to work. When I first got the laptop, the default BIOS was UEFI, and I installed two different operating systems. Windows 10 with BitLocker full disk encryption on the normal drive. The spinning 2.5-inch disk was replaced with an SSD. And then Ubuntu 19.10 on the M2 SATA drive that they had added with Lux full disk encryption. I purchased one of uh, those carriers for the optical bay that allows you to install a third SSD. And so I did that with the intent of putting OpenBSD on it. Since the other two operating systems were running with full disk encryption, I wanted to do the same for OpenBSD. Turns out that with a UEFI install, it is actually surprisingly hard. My first attempt failed miserably. Then I had some inspiration. I decided to install OpenBSD with no encryption and see if I could get things working, booting it from the Grub2 menu in Linux, where I also had an entry for Windows 10. If I could do that, I could then figure out how to go back and add or drop the non-EFI partition and replace it with a soft RAID with encrypted and so on. So installing OpenBSD straight up and was able to boot the disk from the boot menu in Tianacore's implementation of UEFI. Trick was now to figure out what entry uh, to make in the Grub2 menu under Ubuntu to get things to work. I shot in the dark based on, on some old web searches. After you know getting no joy with that, I decided to just sleep on it. Uh, when I attempted again, I remembered that you could hit the C key from the Grub2 menu and get an interactive grub prompt. From here, I used the ls command to find the grub2 name for my OpenBSD EFI partition that was created by the installer. In my case, it was hd2, gpt2. Uh, so when I did an ls of slash in that directory, I was able to see the EFI subdirectory, note the trailing slash, and then I could ls further into that and eventually find the boot x64 to EFI file. Okay, now I can get grub to boot that. Turns out there's a module you have to load called part underscore ms dos, and that's uh, so it understands the fat partition that the EFI directory is using. I tried issuing the insmod command to load that, 
and then use the chain loader to boot that EFI binary. Then I issued the boot command and I booted into my unencrypted OpenBSD partition. Now that I had this working, it was a simple matter of editing that 40 underscore custom file in the grub.d on Ubuntu to add an entry for that automatically. With that, I was able to boot from the grub2 menu into my encrypted OpenBSD partition. Yay! Now to make it an encrypted partition. I booted up from my USB install media from OpenBSD, dropped to the shell, and used the fdisk command in interactive mode to delete all of the non-swap OpenBSD partitions from the disks. I didn't delete the EFI partition. After that, I created a single A partition and made its file system type RAID. From there, I issued the BIOCTL command to turn that partition into a soft RAID encrypted partition. And I provided my password to decrypt the partition twice, and voila, I had the device SD4 now encrypted. I went back to the installer with the exit command and installed OpenBSD the normal way using this new SD4 partition. Now for the acid test, without changing anything in Grub2, I rebooted and selected my OpenBSD menu item and drum roll, yep, everything just worked. I now have a ThinkPad T440P hot routed with a T540 touchpad, uh, the 1080p IPS panel, 16 gigs of RAM, and a high-end i7, running core boot instead of the stock BIOS with three SSDs, uh, each with a different OS on them, all encrypted and a nice menu to choose between, OpenBSD 6.6, Ubuntu 19.10, and Windows 10. Uh, by the way, if you're thinking about core booting uh, ThinkPad T440P, remember these two special things. Uh, you can't use the stock 4.11 code base, you'll need to add special patches from Archvan, and the Octoperf site has a great breakdown on what you can upgrade with links to magic necessary to get Windows 10 to allow you to install and keep the driver for the, the T550 ThinkPad, even though it thinks you have a T5, or T440. That's a very nice setup. Yes, uh, cherry picking individual parts from later models is an interesting approach. <laughs> but I guess, you know, he, he described the uh, touchpad as a clunk pad, and I can understand why you really wouldn't want that. <laughs> but so far, this is a successful uh, implementation. And uh, yeah, we haven't seen many of these uh, core boot and Tiano core uh, stories yet on the show. So good to have those. Yeah, very nice. Uh, the next item we have is a bit of an announcement of the end of life from FreeBSD 12.0. And we used to be so excited when it came out, and now it's already <laughs> time to get into the attic. I had more than a year, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, the security officer uh, writes that, uh, Dear FreeBSD community, as of February 29, 2020, FreeBSD 2.0 will reach end of life and will no longer be supported by the FreeBSD security team. Users of FreeBSD 12.0 are strongly encouraged to upgrade to a newer release as soon as possible. And they list the currently supported branches and releases with their expected end of life dates. Because 12.1 came out November 4th of 2019, and we give you three months to upgrade. It's a minor release, so it's not that big of a change. It's it's not like going from 11 to 12. It's just 12.0 to 12.1. Three months is more than enough time. And because we rounded it to the end of the month, you basically have had four months now. Don't be lazy. <laughs> you had your time. <laughs> and there's plenty of uh, stuff in 12.0 that's desirable. There's a bunch of good fixes uh, for ZFS and other stuff in 12.1, so you want to get upgraded. So, uh, yeah, that is uh, there. And, oh, if while we're here, uh, the 11.3 release 
um, came out in July 9, 2019. And that estimated EOL is um, the 11.4 release plus three months. So uh, be aware of that. Yeah, and 11.4 is already in progress. Uh, so once that comes out, that three-month countdown will start. So you might want to start scheduling when you want to do your upgrades now. A little bit of planning ahead is helpful. Speaking of that, uh, we can look at the release schedules real quick. Uh, currently, uh, 11.4 is slated to come out uh, near the end of June of 2020, so just after BSD can. Uh, and then 12.2 is scheduled to come out in October, just probably just before Meet BSD or whatever happens uh, in October. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, no r- rumors yet, not even heard anything. But in case we do, we will mention that, of course. But by that time, there will be this release uh, here with us, a- as planned, at least. But it gives you an idea, and you can start planning to upgrade stuff. Uh, test first, of course, before you roll it out in production. But I guess that's a given. And so uh, be prepared for these uh, end of lives. And if there are security updates coming, those older releases will not get those. That's why it's important to be on the latest uh, stable or even current if you're so uh, desperate. No, not. Um, <laughs> yeah, remember, keeping updated is an important thing. And uh, that way, you stay safe with the latest developments. Time for the news roundup this week. We have some effects of the ZFS DVA format on data layout and growing ZFS pools from Chris Seibenman. This was a good explanation of how some of this works, so I thought it was really interesting to talk about. So, uh, he starts. One piece of ZFS terminology is the DVA, or DVAs, which is short for Data Virtual Address. It's basically similar to an LBA, the logical block address, which is how hard drives keep track of you know what data is in which sector on a spinning disk, which actually maps out to a place on the platter, doesn't really have the same meaning in an SSD, but in an SSD, it has to pretend and expose those addresses uh, in a similar way. So for ZFS, a DVA is the equivalent of a block number in other file systems. It tells ZFS where to find whatever data you're talking about. The short summary of what fields DVAs have and what they mean is that DVAs tell us how to find a block by giving us the VDEV, which VDEV it's on, uh, their byte offset within that particular VDEV, uh, and then how long that block is. So a typical DVA might say that you can find what you're talking about on VDEV number zero at offset, you know, 53A40ED000. So it just tells you that many blocks into this disk is where uh, that data is, and that data is this many bytes long or whatever. There are some consequences to this, and I haven't really thought about it until the other day when he was uh, talking about how ZFS isn't really good at reshaping your existing pool because changing these DVA numbers is quite difficult. So right away, we can see why ZFS has problems with removing a VDEV. A VDEV's number is burned into every block that was ever written. The metadata of every block that was ever written to that disk has to know which disk is on. If there's no VDEV0 in the pool, ZFS has no idea where we can even start looking for data because all addresses are relative to that DVA or VDEV. ZFS pool shrinking gets around this by adding a translation layer that says where to find a portion of VDEV0 that we care about. So the 
device removal or, or device evacuation, I guess is the right term, that ZFS got around FreeBSD 12, uh, which allows you to remove a single device or a, a part of a mirror. The way it works is replaces, you know, VDEV 2 with this virtual VDEV, which is basically a table that says the first two gigabytes of VDEV 2 are now over here. And the next some random size of range is over here. And so it tries to basically it just says this range of blocks that were on the hard drive that we're taking out now lives over here. And the next range is over here. And it tries to make those ranges as big as possible to keep the size of that table as small as possible. And if you've ever done a device evacuation, you'll notice in ZPool status, it will tell you how many megabytes of memory are being used to keep track of these relocations. And as you slowly overwrite that data and stop using it, and it gets written out with what we call a concrete DVA, meaning it actually points to a real disk, not one of these virtual indirection tables, that table will keep shrinking until it eventually goes away. Although if you keep data that was on a removed disk forever, it will never go away. Because we do it in very large ranges, instead of every individual block, the tables usually aren't too big. In a mere VDEV, any single disk must be enough by itself to recover all the data. Since the DVA simply specifies a byte offset within the VDEV, this implies that in ZFS mirror VDEVs, all copies of a block are at the same place on each disk. Right? So if we store your text file at you know offset 1 million into the disk, it's in offset 1 million all of the disks in that mirror so that we just know, hey, it's in that mirror DDEV at this offset. You can use any of the disks to get it. So this A allows us to get it no matter how many disks fail, as long as there's one left, but also allows us to do load balancing. Whichever disk is least busy right now is the one we were going to read from so that we can get the most performance out of the mirror. Whereas if they were each at a different offset, that might be more difficult. So contrary to what Chris thought uh, might be the case. If VDEV0 is a mirror, our DVA says that you can find our data at a specific byte set on each and every one of those disks, rather than maybe it being in a different place on each disk. This might have a slight downside if there's somehow like a manufacturing defect in the disk and all the disks have a problem in a specific range or something, but that's not that typical. Uh, so where it gets more complicated is RAID Z. In a RAID Z VDEV, our data lives across multiple disks with parity, but we only have the byte offset uh, from the start of that whole RAID Z. So just like a mirror, the DVA number we have is relative to the whole top-level VDEV, the mirror or the RAID Z, not any one individual disk. The first implication of this is that in a RAID Z VDEV, a block is always striped sequentially across your disks at basically the same block offsets. If you think of your disk logically as having block 0, 1, 2, 3, 4 in a 5-disk RAID Z or whatever, uh, all of those are going to be the offset zero-ish uh, on each of those five disks. And then the next one, and the next one, the next one. Uh, ZFS doesn't find one bit of free space on disk one, a separate bit on disk two, and a third on disk three, and so on, and then join them together. Instead, it finds a contiguous stripe of free space starting on one disk and uses it across all the disks. This space can be short or long. It doesn't have to start on the first disk in the RAIDs of VDEV, and it can wrap around uh, possibly repeatedly. Looking at the diagrams Matt Ahrens wrote for the RAID Z expansion stuff can make this make a little bit more sense. This makes it easier for me to understand why ZFS rounds your RAID Z uh, allocations up to a multiple of n plus one blocks. You know, when we talked about if you're using RAID Z2 
then the smallest amount of space you can allocate is three sectors. One sector for the data and two sectors for the two parity copies. If you need to write four sectors, ZFS is going to round that up to six, right? Because you have two sectors of data and the two sectors of parity, but there's two sectors of padding. The reason it does this is otherwise, if we allocated just four, then, you know, the next one, maybe we allocated as, as three. When you go and free that four sectors, and the next time you write it, which is one block, right? So you have one block and two parity, so it's three. Now, between those two allocations, you have one block of free space. And since the smallest amount of space you can write is three sectors, that means that space can no longer be used. And so as fragmentation got worse, you just would just keep shrinking and it would be terrible. So ZFS always pads it out to parity plus one so that all allocations will be aligned with the smallest size so that you'll never create these holes of unusable space. Another way to put this is that uh, for RAID Z VDEVs, the DVA is the VDEV byte address and it snakes across all of the devices in the VDEV in sequence, switching to a new disk uh, every allocation size bytes. In a VDEV with a 4K sector size, uh, VDEV bytes 0 through 4095 are on the first disk, and then 4096 to 8191 are on the second disk, and so on. The unfortunate implication is this, is that the number of disks in a RAID Z VDEV is an implicit part of the address of the data in it. So if we calculate, you know, address 1 million in a RAID Z VDEV, you know, we know that the first sector is on the first disk and the second sector is on the second disk, and then if we have five disks, then the sixth sector will be back on the first disk, and so on. If we want to change the number of disks in the VDEV, that's going to change every single address except for the first five, right? If we grow it from five to six, you're going to change the address of every single sector in the pool except for those first five out of, you know, billions. That touches a lot of addresses, yeah. Yeah, that's why the RAID Z expansion work is so complicated um, because you have to start shuffling all the data so that the data that was in sector six which was on disk one, now actually needs to move to disk six, sector zero. Uh, and so you basically slide all the data up one. And then the next time you have slide all the data up two, and then three, and then four, and just keep doing this. And you have to keep track of how far through you are, because people need to be able to read from the disk while you're doing this. So when you're reading an address that's in address lower than the ones you've moved so far, then they need to use the new math to figure out, you know, Oh, it's six disks wide, not five. But any address that you haven't moved yet needs to still use the math where there's only five and the six disk doesn't actually exist yet so that you correctly read the right data. Uh, and so, yes, it is a bit complicated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he says, I'm pretty certain this means that I was wrong in my previous explanation on why ZFS can't allow you to add disks to a RAID Z VDEV. The real problem is not... Uh, inefficiency in the result is that it would blow up your ability to access all your data in the VDEV. Again, uh, Matt's presentation on RAID Z expansion explains how they work around this and why there are some limitations to the way that'll work. So ZFS can grow both mere VDEVs and RAID Z VDEVs if you replace the disks with larger ones, because in both cases, the DVAs don't change in that case. You're just adding new DVAs that didn't exist before at the end. You, so you have to replace all the disks because in some, in both cases, all disks participate in the addressing. In a mere VDEV, this is because 
you know, if one disk is bigger than the other, if you're writing to a DVA that doesn't exist in the other disk, it has nowhere to mirror it. Uh, and then, you know, in RAID Z, it's because the addressable space is striped across all the disks, and you can't have any holes in that, otherwise that's unusable space. Uh, he does note, you can add entire new VDEVs because that's a different VDEV number and doesn't change the interpretation of any existing DVAs since the VDEV number is the first field in the DVA and the byte address is relative to that VDEV, not the whole pool. This feels obvious now, but I want to write it down for my future self since someday I will probably won't be as clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, it will someday will picked up by someone or maybe yourself and then you remember it. Rate that expansion... Maybe now you understand why it's so difficult, but it is coming. Okay, we'll stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, uh, for me personally, if it takes a bit longer and it's mostly complete or error-free by then, it's fine rather than throwing something over the wall and, ah, oh, there are a couple of errors in there, but uh, people will fix it eventually. No, we want to have stable code. And especially when it's uh, about our disks and our data, we want to have less or pretty much no errors in there. That's robust and working well. Okay, um, then we have a warning for you over at the iX Systems blog about Active Directory security changes require TrueNAS and FreeNAS updates. So that's important to know. Uh, they write that Microsoft is changing the security defaults for Active Directory to eliminate some security vulnerabilities in its protocols. They link to that uh, on the Microsoft website, so you can see the details if you're not aware about them already. Uh, unfortunately, these new security defaults may disrupt existing FreeNAS or TrueNAS deployments once Windows systems are updated. The Windows updates may appear sometime in March 2020. No official date has been announced as of yet, uh, but better uh, knowing about them uh, now is better than uh, being sorry after. Uh, so FreeNAS and TrueNAS users that utilize Active Directory should update to version 11.3 or 11.2-U8, the eighth update of the 11.2 version, to avoid the potential disruption of their networks uh, when updating to the latest versions of Windows software after March 1st. The uh, version 11.3 has been released and 11.2-U8 uh, will be available in early March. So that's by the time you're listening to this, I guess this is available already. You have iX Systems technical note for details about their LDAP channeling binding and LDAP signing in particular. And users who are not using Active Directory are completely unaffected by these Microsoft updates and therefore can update their FreeNAS and TrueNAS systems at the le leisure. Okay. Um, there's a bit more details about the SMB sharing and FreeNAS and TrueNAS. So FreeNAS and TrueNAS are used to provide SMB shares in over 80% of deployments. Windows, Mac, and now Linux clients use SMB to share the files. In many of those cases, SMB3 is preferred to NFSv3 and includes some file integrity advantages because the client behavior is well-defined. Uh, the server message block clients gain the advantages of the highly robust OpenZFS file system and all the replication and administration tools that FreeNAS and TrueNAS provide. Uh, SMB3 is usually deployed to organizations or within organizations with Active Directory to manage user authentication and permissions. All Windows servers and FreeNAS, TrueNAS units can be configured to use the same security protocol. Basically, change in Windows to lock things down might impact your FreeNAS, so make sure you get the newer versions that has the required bits to enable the signing that Microsoft will now require. Yeah, exactly. And then you're prepared, and then all the updates from Microsoft won't impact you Good, then we have a full name of the FreeBSD root account. 
this is uh, Sevan uh, Sevan's blog. Oh yeah, uh, we haven't heard from him in a while, but uh, he's blogging. So here's the blog post. So NetBSD now has users and groups manual pages. Looking into what entries existed in the past, WD and group files, I wondered about Root's full name, who we now know as Charlie Root in the BSDs. So Root was called Ernie Kovacs in 3BSD. And Ernie Kovacs also showed up in AdUser. The 4.4 BSD Systems Manager manual mentions, quote, at Berkeley, we have machines named Ernie Kovacs and Kim Novacs, unquote. <laughs> and so Charlie Root, since uh, 4.2 BSD, there's a link for more, at the Unix Historical Society, and actually in 4.1c, uh, but the entries differ. Yeah, so it looks like in, in 4.1, uh, Root's name was Charlie. Uh, his office was 458E, and his phone extension was 7750. <laughs> and yeah, so the ampersand is replaced by a capitalized login name, hence Charlie Root. Oh, okay, that's why. <laughs> if you look at the password file today, you see it, Charlie ampersand, and you're like, what's the ampersand do? As it turns out, it gets replaced with the capitalized version of the username. So if you ever put an ampersand in there by accident, you'll be very confused. <laughs> okay, interesting tidbit dug out uh, from the Unix uh, history archives. Yeah, never know, never wondered or wondered too much to to dig into it. But uh, now, now I know, and you know too. Yeah, I, I had not heard of the uh, Ernie Kovacs thing before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, but I guess most people rename that because they get email from root and want to like name it like the system name or something else that they can remember. Otherwise, you get a lot of email from Charlie Root, and you're like, eh, from which system is this coming from? Interesting. Like if you click on the three BSD password file. You can see that there's a user username Bill, and so his name is ampersand space joy, so Bill Joy. As other people were in there, you just see their the combination or the switching back and forth as people use their first name or last name. Or like Dennis Ritchie is spelled out his full name because his username is just DMR. Oh yes, yeah. Keep it short. Okay. Well, good to know these things. In case someone uh, a newbie sysadmin asks you, hey, why is the thing named this way? Yeah, uh, it looks like there's even a user called Who, uh, which is named the Who program, and its shell is slash bin slash who. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, on those systems back in the day, that was a separate service, I guess, the Who service, Who's Who. Yeah, good to know. All right, uh, I think, uh, oh, yes, we have a double feature from Chris Seibelman in this episode because we have another uh, article from him on his blog about the OpenBSD Go situation. And if you remember last week's episode, uh, we had mentioned that there's an OpenBSD versus Prometheus uh, issue there with Go, and this is apparently a follow-up to it. So Chris goes on, uh, over in the Fediverse, uh, Pete Zedek, uh, or Zedsev, Viv um, uh, had a reaction to my entry on OpenBSD versus Prometheus saying, you know, Chris himself doesn't uh, make that claim, but it seems to me that anything written in Go is almost unusable on OpenBSD. And Chris responds, I don't think the situation is usually that bad. Our situation with Prometheus is basically a worst case scenario for Go on OpenBSD, and most people have much better results, especially if you stick to supported OpenBSD versions. If you stick to supported OpenBSD versions, upgrading your machine as older OpenBSD releases fall out of support, as 
you know, the OpenBSD people want you to do, you should not have any problems with your Go programs. The latest Go release will support the currently supported OpenBSD versions, as long as OpenBSD remains a supported platform for Go. And the Go 1.0 uh, compatibility guarantee means that you can always rebuild your current Go program with a newer version of Go. You might have problems with compiled binaries that you don't want to rebuild, but my understanding is that this is the case for OpenBSD in general, You know, where you're going to want to recompile your binaries because the API might change between versions. That's how OpenBSD works. You know, It doesn't guarantee a stable API even for C programs, let alone Go programs. If you use OpenBSD, you have to be prepared to rebuild your code after OpenBSD upgrades, regardless of what language you're writing it in. You may have to change the code too, since OpenBSD doesn't guarantee the ABI compatibility across versions either, but the API is generally more stable than the ABI. If you have older, out-of-support OpenBSD versions and Go programs that you keep developing, you're fine as long as you make your Go code work with the older Go releases that's required for your oldest OpenBSD. This mostly means avoiding new additions to the Go standard library, although sometimes performance improvements may make new patterns in Go code more feasible, and you'll have to not rely on them. Uh, you'll probably have to freeze and maintain your own binary copies of old Go releases for appropriately old OpenBSD versions. Go's current ongoing switch from its old way of just fetching packages to modules may cause you some heartburn, but you can probably deal with this by vendoring everything. If you have Go programs that you don't keep developing, life is even easier because you can freeze your pre-built binaries for older OpenBSD versions and all is well. All you need to do is periodically build the latest Go for your latest OpenBSD and then build your program with it and that will just continue to work until you change something. If you have older OpenBSD releases as well as current ones and a Go program where you want to be able to use the latest Go features or where you want to keep up with the dependencies and those dependencies, etc., and they're going to use the new features, you can still do this, provided that you don't need to run newer versions of your program on older versions of OpenBSD. If you're fine with the versions they have, even if they're not as efficient or as featureful as the latest ones, then you can just freeze those pre-built binaries and continue to run them until you upgrade to the latest OpenBSD with the latest Go. In his case, it was just Prometheus was renaming things and it was making it more complicated. Anyway, this is... Uh, and this gets us down to Prometheus, where we have the worst case scenario. You need to run the current version of your program on all OpenBSD versions. And the current version uses features from very recent versions of Go, uh, which only run on a few versions of OpenBSD. And it doesn't work, as the previous article said. You know, the situation with Go on OpenBSD is really not that bad. It just his particular case with Prometheus, because they're renaming stuff, and he's trying to run the latest versions and dependencies and so on, uh, it ends up. Uh, not working out as smoothly as he'd like. Ah, oh, okay. Then he has a sidebar about Seago. In general, avoiding Seago is likely to extend the range of OpenBSD versions that a Go program can run on. Even a Go program that's built with a very latest version of Go. Although older versions of OpenBSD aren't officially supported by Go 1.14, you can cross-build a pure Go program uh, that seems to work as far back as OpenBSD 5.8 although it fails on 5.4, with a bad system call core dump. <laughs> uh, using Seago gives you two problems. You can't cross-build, and you're likely to be much more restricted in what range of OpenBSD versions the resulting binary will actually run on. Being able to cross-build from Linux makes it uh, easier to set up older Go programs to build binaries for old OpenBSD versions, since old Go versions will generally build fine even on newer Linuxes. Okay, so it's 
just a different uh, situation and it's not a general problem with OpenBSD. Good to know about these. Mm-hmm. Time for the Beastie Bits this week. And this time we have really three little bits for you, but nevertheless uh, important enough to mention them. The first is test your Tor. Uh, about the OpenBSD Tor browser. Uh, George Rosamond writes that uh, Kaspar Schutzer, hopefully that's the correct pronunciation, updated uh, the Tor browser on OpenBSD to the most recent version 9.0.5 in the current ports. Uh, there's a link to the CVS web for that change. Uh, the package is also ready and more people should test, specifically if they can compare to the same version on another operating system or if you want to dive into the Tor source. So yeah, call for testing or uh, comparing, I guess. So if more people do that, there's a bigger chance that improvements get incorporated and things like that. So it's working better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Then we have a new version of OpenSense uh, being uh, released or have been released. This is 20.1.1. Yeah, so this is the first update to the January 2020 long-term support version of OpenSense. And they say, hello, hello, a tiny update to keep everyone happy. Here are the full patch notes. Uh, system has increased size of user SSH key input box, uh, as well as a faulty PPP logging fix, log link in the menu. A PHP warning on the general settings page has been fixed. Yeah, you don't want to see PHP warnings, um, <laughs> unless they're uh, important. Uh, interfaces got updates to the maximum MTU for 10 gigabit NICs, uh, which was contributed by Len White. Uh, the firewall got fixed rule statistics displays for rules using tagging. Uh, reporting got fixes for the missing separator in the NetFlow configuration. Uh, firmware has added quantum mirror in Hungary. Oh, good. So that's closer to home for the Hungarian people. Uh, OpenVPN got a fix for ifconfig-ipv6 push format, as well as a bunch of plugin updates and ports updates as well. I think it kind of slipped between recordings. So the actual... 20.1 release, uh, here's the major changes that happened between the old 19.7 and the 20.1. The captive portal performance has been improved greatly. IPsec public key authentication support has been added. Elliptic curve TLS certificate creation has been added. The CARP service demotion hook now exists so that you can have stuff happen uh, when CARP demotes. They've added VXLAN device support, loopback device support, improved the firmware health audit checks, added direction and non-quick options to the interface rules, improved the logging uh, front end for the API and the MVC, reformatted the code in PSR 12 coding style, documented all the core components so that they're easier to change. Uh, The default version of Python upgraded to 3.7, updated to LibreSSL 3 and OpenSSL 1.1.1, added support for the Google Backup API and upgraded the version of jQuery. Yeah, so test out the release and uh, report any things you find, especially if you find them working well. Giving thanks back is also appreciated by the project. So yeah, <laughs> don't always report uh, bugs all the time. So always something write a little thank you note. That's uh, <laughs> hopefully appreciated. And uh, in another item, we have package for FreeBSD 1.13. Yes, this is a relatively big uh, update. 
Ah, Batiste uh, has the release message um, or did the commit. Uh, here goes. The, when installing over a non-tracked file not owned by any package, package now saves a copy of that file as .package save. Yeah, so in case you need the old file, you can still find it and uh, extension .package save. Uh, then they fix the chicken and egg problem with the meta being compressed and defining the compression format. Now package repo will create a meta.conf file uh, uncompressed, small enough, and fall back on the old meta.txz. Note that meta.txz is still created for backwards compatibility, so if you have an older version, that is covered. And package repo now creates a meta file in version 2 by default, meaning the digests.txz, uh, this is only used with packets up to 1.2, Uh, anyone using that version and willing to upgrade can do it via package bootstrap dash lowercase f. Okay, so that's how you get into the newer world. Uh, they suppress the version checking when dash j is specified. Uh, they alphabetically sorted package printed in the output of package commands to ease readability. Package lock and unlock now allow multiple packages in arguments. So you, you kind of glossed over that one, the alphabetical sorting. So this means when you run package upgrade... It actually sorts the list of packages alphabetically so that you can read it a little bit more instead of it just being kind of random. Yeah, yeah, right. Much easier to tell, okay, it's going to uninstall that program because of some change in dependencies or it's going to upgrade this one. and update. So that sorting makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, package lock and unlock, as I mentioned. You can now uh, add multiple packages there in arguments. Uh, the shell script can now print messages along with package dash messages by writing to the package message uh, file descriptor, I guess. Yeah. And then they improve the error reporting when parsing the vulnerability XML file. Always good to have that. Uh, Lua scripts are now ready for prime time. Oh, here we go. Sandbox with Capsicum, good, on platforms that support it. Uh, the root deer is native and they have documented it. Oh, excellent. Very good. So go into Lua scripting in future uh, packages. I guess we will see more of that. Uh, they also fixed package backup. Package now gives a hint about running package update-f in case of size mismatch. Yeah, I've seen a couple of those. Scripts, Lua and Shell can now determine if they are in the process of an upgrade or an installation via a variable. So they can tell you, oh, I'm upgrading in this other window over there. Uh, please wait or something. Uh, then Shell scripts are now fully documented and keyboard files are also now fully documented or at least documented. So yeah, great. Best reason to update to your latest package version And thanks for the package people who are still maintaining packages and keeping it awesome and adding features even, fixing old bugs. So it's our favorite package tool. For me personally, at one time, I just give me give myself an alias in my um, in my shell and just do bubget. I know that Baptiste is not the only one who did package, but um, it's just a nice way of <laughs> giving the appreciation. Yes, I remember when that was an option when installing package to get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so thanks for all the package people uh, doing the development in the package framework. Uh, it's much appreciated because it's making things so much easier. All right, it's time for feedback and questions this week. Uh, we have three people, but we would like to have more in the future in case we run out of them. So send us your questions or feedback or anything that you want to have mentioned on this show to feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first one who did this uh, a while ago, but uh, we have him now. Uh, it's Bastian uh, about WireGuard. 
And Boston has written us before a couple questions, so uh, here goes. Hi, Alan and Benedict and JT. And any guests that might be present at the same time or at the time. Okay, yeah, good to <laughs> just in case have that. Um, I have a short question about WireGuard. Uh, this question is for both you and also JT is welcome to answer it. I uh, hope he's listening. <laughs> do you use WireGuard in any of your systems? Why? Yes or no? Uh, so I do. Uh, I like it because it was very easy to set up uh, and, you know, has a client that works everywhere. It definitely seems less of a setup than open VPN. Uh, and it's just that much less heavy lifting and so on. Uh, it works quite nice. I think I'm using the Go version on FreeBSD right now. Uh, I even got it to work inside a VNet jail so that it sits over here. It's I, I can easily move it to other hosts if I need to as my VPN server, uh, but then it can be bridged to the right network so that it, you know, I can reach my stuff at home while I'm on the road if I need to. Uh, so I haven't used it yet. I use a lot of uh, VPNs with my home university uh, to get into systems or just SSH into it. We have a little of a, a jump host that just gives me shell access. That's most of the time what I need. I don't need to get uh, browser windows or any other desktop applications over. I just use the console most of the time. But I hear good things about WireGuard. And if it comes up and I have the need for it, I would probably try it out very good reason and the more people use it the more people I can ask how they do it <laughs> um, yeah so hopefully that answers your question I guess JT can reply maybe in a follow up or somewhere else um, second related questions uh, I haven't seen any news about WireGuard getting into FreeBSD base system do you know if it will get there um, I couldn't find it when I looked really quickly but I'm sure I saw that NetGate, the company behind PFSense, is working on this and that, yes. So I'm relatively sure that this is definitely happening. I don't know exactly when, but as far as I know, there is a bunch of work in progress and uh, it should be good. Having a, a full native version of it that's super fast would be awesome. Like in a, in a kernel module or in yeah, just having it available? Yeah, I think that's the idea. Yeah, I, I guess they will have that eventually. Just stay tuned or use the, the one from ports that's, I mean, in user land, it's, it's not the fastest. It's fast enough, I guess. But of course, having a, a kernel module makes things uh, speed up much more. Okay, so thanks for that question. Keep them coming if you have more. And going on to the next one, uh, Charlie. Uh, oh, Charlie has a follow-up to WPA supplicant as lower class citizen. That was in reference to an earlier episode a couple of weeks ago. Right, it was the what uh, 802.1x or whatever. Yeah. Uh, to be able to unlock the... Um, a wired connection? Yes, uh, like unlock a lockdown... A network or university, university network. Yeah, so you don't get anything out of the uh, the box in that you plug in your Ethernet cable unless you authenticate first. Uh, yeah, so uh, that goes. Charlie writes, I'm the user from the WPA supplicant as a lower class citizen story last week or the week last before we got the uh, reply i just wanted to mention two things okay the first i managed to get it working oh good after trying every different combination i could think of since our university's public network kicks you off if you log into something as a student i managed to figure out that openbsd's implementation of wpa supplicant for some reason couldn't take the password field as psk like pre-shared key 
like it had for Linux. Rather, it had to be plain text, password equals field in WPA supplicant conf. Ah, okay, so that was the culprit. Second thing, funny you should mention the password thing. Oh, great. <laughs> I had looked over my email several times before sending to MISC to ensure nothing outside of my email could be discerned from the text. However, I realized my mistake quickly afterwards when something had converted one of the hex dumps into text for some reason to my password when I got a reply. Oops. After sending the most of the night changing all my passwords for good measure, making sure none of my accounts had been accessed, I decided to try to find a password manager I could host on one of my OpenBSD servers to help my account security. Uh, this led me to JCS's Ruby Warden implementation of Bitwarden that was meant for hosting on OpenBSD. Having been using that since, I figured I'd say something to you all in case you haven't seen it as it is made by an OpenBSD dev for OpenBSD. So here's a GitHub link. This is github.com slash JCS slash Ruby Warden. Okay, good to know. I'll probably a couple people check that out because they haven't heard about it yet. There's a description there and, of course, instructions how to build and run this thing. And yeah, a password manager for you uh written in ruby yeah it's it's always interesting that you know this random love of hex i wonder what's in it oops <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh that's your password um <laughs> yeah so definitely good suggestion thanks for that oh they also have an ansible playbook for openbsd to automatically deploy ruby warden oh wow that's sophistication okay uh, again thanks for that and last but not least is lars and Lars writes about LibreSSL as a positive example. Oh, I'd like to hear more about this. Hi, thanks for the consistently interesting and informative shows. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the, to, to the interesting and informative shows. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, I guess most of our submissions are from users for users, and that makes it interesting for people to listen. And that's why the show is so uh, successful. Okay, back to the message. I notice that books are mentioned fairly often. Perhaps when you are out and mingling with other developers, you can ask them to verify this following item. Some of them are bound to have this book or have read it. Uh, code from the OpenBSD's project LibreSSL is used as a positive example in Serious Cryptography, a Practical Introduction to Modern Encryption. Uh, from 2017 by Jean-Philippe Omasson, uh, I guess, uh, published by No Starch Press. Specifically, on pages 30 and 31, it is used to show a safer way to use DevU Random. It's an indication that the subject, coding style, and code quality from OpenBSD is having a positive impact far outside the OpenBSD project itself. Yeah, you know, that's basically the goal of the OpenBSD project is less about OpenBSD being the most secure thing as being a platform to demonstrate better practices and getting those adopted as widely as possible. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I seem to have missed that book. So I'm not, uh, I'm occasionally going through the No Such Press, uh, uh, you know, releases and see, oh, this is a book I might want to read. Uh, but this has uh, escaped me so far. No, this one sounds like it might be slightly over the level I want to read about encryption. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but still, um, I want to make sure if someone asks me, hey, do you know a good about book about topic X, then I might as well recommend something from those Darch. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for that. Definitely uh, giving that shout out in a book to OpenBSD gives them a bit more visibility outside of the BSD space itself. 
Good. That pretty much wraps up our episode for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Hope you are uh, enjoying this episode and uh, stay tuned for next week's episode of BSD Now. <laughs>